Hello everyone, welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 17, The Senate and the People of Rome. Last time, we examined the fallout following Alexander the Great's death and the breakup of his empire. After 20 years of squabbling and countless Greek casualties, Alexander's generals managed to impose a semblance of order on the east, divvying up the once great empire into their own personal realms. Today, in the final episode of our tour of the Mediterranean circa 300 BC, we wrap up by looking at the new upstart power in Italy, Rome. Fortunately, Alexander's successors provide a perfect transition towards the affairs of Italy. If you remember from last episode, the Kingdom of Epirus highlighted in dark green on the map on the website, which you can access via the link in the description, have been closely tied with the fortunes of Alexander the Great. Epirus, which roughly corresponds to modern-day Albania, was the birthplace of Alexander's mother, Olympias, who was the daughter of the king of Epirus, and Alexander himself had stopped there in his flight from Macedonia following a quarrel with his father, Philip. At the time, Alexander's uncle, also named Alexander, who is commonly referred to as Alexander Melosus in order to distinguish him from his more famous nephew, ruled over Epirus. His title Melosus likely derived from him being the chief of the Melosians, the main tribe of the Epirus. Philip had placed Alexander Melosus on the throne of Epirus, and though Olympias demanded that Alexander Melosus attack Philip to avenge the insults to their family, Alexander Melosus declined and instead sealed his alliance with Philip by marrying Philip's daughter, Cleopatra, his own niece. As we remember, Alexander the Great succeeded to the throne of Macedonia after his father's assassination, and the two Alexanders seemed to have remained on good terms with each other. In the same year that Alexander the Great crossed into Asia Minor to win his great empire, Alexander Melosus crossed over to Italy to aid the hard-pressed Greek colony of Tarentum against the warlike Italian tribes of the Lucanians and Brutians, who inhabited the ankle and toe portion of the boot, quote-unquote, of Italy. Following a series of initial victories, the Epirote army was later annihilated at the Battle of Pandosia by a combined force of Lucanians and Brutians. Fighting in small, mobile units with sword, shield, and javelins, the Italians were able to move rapidly across the hilly and rain-soaked terrain while the Macedonian-style phalanx of the Epirotes became bogged down by the mud and was unable to maneuver effectively. Alexander Melosus attempted to cross the river Acheron, despite an oracle which prophesied he would find his death there, and as he waded into the river, a Lucanian traitor in his army impaled him with a javelin. As he lay dying, Alexander Melosus compared his own fortunes with those of his nephew, Alexander the Great, currently enjoying unprecedented success in the East. 
dismissively. Alexander Melosis observed that Alexander the Great, fighting the Persians, was merely waging war against women, and had he come west to fight the fierce and warlike Italian tribes, as Alexander Melosis and the Iperodes had done, history might have been very different. The historian Livy, who recounts this story, proudly boasts that one of these fierce and warlike tribes, the city-state of Rome, would have most likely handed Alexander the Great his first defeat. Although Livy, as a patriotic Roman writer, is probably guilty of a bold exaggeration here, the fact remains that in the violent world that was Italy in the 300s BC, the city-state of Rome was rapidly making a name for herself. Legend has it that the Romans were descendants of Aeneas and his Trojan refugees, who, as we remember from episode 2, made a brief stop in Carthage, just long enough for Aeneas to first woo the Carthaginian queen, Dido, and then immediately break her heart. Following a series of battles with the local Latin tribes, Aeneas and his followers settled in Latium in central Italy, intermarrying with the locals. One of Aeneas's descendants, Rhea Silvia, daughter of a Latin king, was reportedly raped by the Roman war god Mars, and she gave birth to twins, Romulus and Remus. Meanwhile, Silvia's father had been deposed by his younger brother, and, fearing that the twins would attempt to retake the throne if allowed to live, the new king ordered one of his servants to cast the babies into the Tiber River. However, the servant took pity on them, and instead set them on the banks of the river. Subsequently, a she-wolf took the brothers as her own and suckled them until they were found by the shepherd Faustulus, who adopted them and raised them. When the boys came of age, they overthrew their usurping uncle and restored Sylvia's father, their grandfather, to the throne. They then determined to establish their own city on the hills overlooking the spot on the Tiber where they had been saved. Things got off to a bad start, though for when Romulus was halfway done building the walls of the new settlement, his brother Remus leapt over them in mockery to show how inadequate they were. In a fit of rage, Romulus killed his brother Remus, crying out, So perish whoever else shall overleap my battlements. Despite this fratricide, Romulus became the first king of Rome, the city which he had named for himself. And the city quickly grew to cover the seven hills surrounding the Palatine, the site of the first settlement. These would become the famous seven hills of Rome, which would become synonymous with the city of Rome herself. The traditional date for Rome's founding is April 21st, 753 B.C. Rome's violent and bloody beginning continued after her founding. Unlike Carthage, who, as we remember from the early episodes, had a relatively peaceful and stable rise to world prominence through commerce and diplomacy, Rome from the start was an aggressive, warlike, 
and proud civilization. Once they had established the city, the Romans under Romulus quickly realized that they had too few women to be wives for their young men. When their overtures to the local cities requesting permission to intermarry were rebuffed, the Romans devised a scheme to lure the ladies to them. Putting on a festival in the city of Rome, the Romans invited their neighbors, particularly the local Sabines, to join in the celebration. After the Sabines had entered the city, the Romans, at a prearranged signal, fell on the eligible women and carried them off. Outraged by this treachery and failure of hospitality, the Sabines prepared to attack the Romans to rescue their sisters and daughters, and a fierce battle ensued. But while battle was joined, the Sabine women who had been carried off, now the wives of Roman citizens, intervened, braving the missiles and swords of the combatants as they marched between the two armies with hair loosed and garments rent, imploring their fathers and brothers on the one side and their husbands on the other to make peace. Moved by this display of courage and appeals of their women, the Romans and Sabines not only made peace, but agreed to unite as one people, with Romulus and Tadius, king of the Sabines, agreeing to rule jointly. In honor of the pivotal role the Sabine women had played in this treaty, Romulus named 30 of the wards of Rome after 30 of these women. Seven kings followed Romulus. During this time, the Romans fell under the sway of the powerful Etruscans of northern Italy, from whom they adopted many cultural and military characteristics, which the Etruscans in turn had probably gained through contact with Greece. After shaking off Etruscan dominion sometime in the late 600s BC, the Romans expelled their last king, Tarquin the Proud. Livy reports that Tarquin's son, inflamed with lust for a comrade's beautiful and virtuous wife, Lucretia, forced himself upon her by threats. Overwhelmed by guilt and shame, Lucretia, after informing her husband and father of what had happened, drove a knife into her heart before her family could stop her. Grieved by her death, Lucius Junius Brutus, a friend of Lucretia's husband, drew the bloody knife from her body and cried, By this girl's blood, none more chaste till a tyrant wronged her, and by the gods, I swear that with sword and fire and whatever else can lend strength to my arm, I will pursue Lucius Tarquinius the Proud, his wicked wife, and all his children, and never again will I let them or any other man be king in Rome. Carrying Lucretia's body into the public square, Brutus called out to the Romans to rise up and avenge the outrage committed by Tarquin's son. The people, horrified and infuriated by Brutus's words, expelled Tarquin and his family from the city, all of whom would die in exile. With the kings out of the way, 
the Roman citizens determined to establish a republican form of government. Although the growth of the Roman Republic was gradual, we will cover it here as it looked during the Punic Wars with the Carthaginians for the sake of time. First, two consuls, who each held office for a year and were elected by the people, functioned as joint heads of state and exercised executive powers. Brutus, now heralded as the liberator of Rome, served as one of Rome's first consuls, and he and his fellow consul initially wielded as much power as the kings originally had, but later consular power was limited by the senate and the people. Despite their great authority, practically, the consul's actions were often hampered by their opposing colleague, who could veto the other consul's decisions, but not overrule him directly. The consuls were responsible for all matters of public concern, according to the Greek historian Polybius, which included presenting envoys to the Senate, drawing up the matters to be discussed by the Senate, convening popular assemblies, executing the Senate's decrees, and supervising and commanding the army, by far their most important function. The patricians, the aristocratic nobles of Roman society, who could trace their lineage back to the founding of the city, supplied the candidates for the two consular positions, while the common people, or plebeians, elected the consuls, subject to approval from the Senate. By far the leading institution of the Roman government was the Senate, a group of 300 patricians from Rome's leading families acting as the center of political power. Appointed for life, the senators determined public policy, controlled disbursements from the treasury, and oversaw religious affairs. The Senate also performed the majority of the diplomatic functions of the Roman state, including arbitrating disputes, sending demands, accepting submissions, declaring war, and receiving foreign ambassadors. Additionally, the Senate served as the primary legal court for crimes which required public investigation, quote-unquote, such as treachery, conspiracy, mass poisoning, and gang murder. Although initially more oligarchical in nature, the Roman Republic moved from an oligarchy into a more republican form of government after a series of reforms demanded by the plebeians, one of the most critical of which was the establishment of the office of the tribunes. These officials, typically elected from the plebeian class, had the power to halt any proceeding in the Senate by yelling veto, Latin for I forbid, in the chambers during a session. This gave them substantial, if somewhat indirect, power over governmental proceedings, since they could block any magistrate from exercising his office including the punishment of a citizen. By law, the tribunes had to be accessible to the people at all times, allowing them to serve as a sort of intermediary between the Senate and the people. Another significant development resulting from these Republican reforms was the establishment of a written law code, the famed Twelve Tables, 
drawn up by a council of ten nobles. The twelve tables sat in the forum, or central marketplace, of ancient Rome, as a reminder of the rule of law, and the Roman children were taught to memorize these rules at a young age. Throughout their long history, the Romans exhibited an extreme respect for the law, and their emphasis on justice and legality, so central to their founding and early history, remained with them for centuries. Indeed, part of the Roman success can be attributed to how they utilized their efficient and organized law codes to assimilate the peoples they conquered. Following these early gains, the plebeians had new offices created, which took over old powers previously held solely by the consuls. Gradually, other offices, such as augurs, soothsayers, and recorders of omens, pontiffs, high priests who presided over rituals and recorded the lore of the city, and even those of the senate and consularship opened up to the plebeians as well. Coupled with the tribunes and the plebeian officers, the mass of the commoners formed the people, a popular assembly which performed numerous functions and wielded considerable power at their height. Polybius states that the people acted as the sole judges in control of rewards and punishments, especially when the accused had held high office in the government or where the punishment was a substantial fine or even death. Besides this judicial role, the people also voted in elections for most of the assigned offices, such as consul and tribune, as well as approving or vetoing measures brought before them by the consuls, such as whether or not to declare war and whether to ratify alliances, truces, and treaties. Collectively, the Roman Republic was referred to as the Senatus Populusque Romanus, which translates to the Senate and the People of Rome. The newly founded Roman Republic faced challenges almost immediately upon coming into being. As we saw from Alexander Melosis's comments, Italy was a continuous war zone of squabbling city-states and tribes who were constantly at each other's throats. Born into this feuding landscape, the Romans were forced to adapt or perish, and although their early history is one of nearly incessant warfare and conquest, Aggression and sternness were traits necessary to survive, much less thrive, in the Italian region. As historian Arthur Eckstein puts it, the Roman experience of competition for influence, power, and security, first in Latium, then in central Italy, and then in the wide western Mediterranean, was a harsh experience against formidable and warlike rivals. To survive in such a world, the Romans needed all the grit and determination which would make them famous as the greatest civilization of antiquity. Fighting up and down the breadth of the Italian peninsula, the Romans waged long and bitter wars for control of central Italy against the Latins and Etruscans, which included a ten-year-long siege against the Etruscan capital of Veii. 
Following this, Rome herself was sacked by an invading tribe of Gauls, who, as we remember from episode 15, gave the Romans an insult that they would never forget. After recovering from this sack, the Romans then launched three lengthy wars against the Samnites in southern Italy. Up until this point, the Romans had been fighting in the Greek phalanx formation, but due to the hilly terrain of the Samnite territory, they found the phalanx unsuitable and ineffective. Instead, they adopted the Samnites' method of fighting in small units with sword, shield, and javelins, demonstrating the germ of the gifted Roman talent of adapting and incorporating their enemies' strengths and ideas as their own. This reform would lead to the famous manipular system, with each unit or maniple fighting in a chessboard-like formation, allowing for maximum flexibility and effectiveness regardless of the terrain, something that could not be said for the phalanx. We will likely cover the Roman army in detail in the future, but suffice it to say that their innovations in infantry equipment and tactics proved to be outstandingly successful. Despite the effectiveness of their new formation, the Romans had another trait which made them extremely difficult to combat, an inability to accept defeat that allowed them to absorb shocking losses. The Romans suffered appalling catastrophes in nearly all of their wars during this period in the Italian peninsula, but when knocked down, they showed a resilience and grit that proved unstoppable. As historian Richard Miles puts it, the Roman state responded to defeat not with offers of peace treaties and truces, but with the sending out of new armies to recover what had been lost. The fact that the Romans also seemed to be able to draw from a nearly unlimited supply of manpower allowed them to keep up relentless pressure on their enemies until they obtained final victory. As we shall see in the coming episodes, this innate Roman grit served them in good stead in the centuries to come, especially during the catastrophic losses suffered in the Punic Wars. Finally, besides Rome's celebrated military strengths, she also showed a wisdom and farsightedness in her policies that allowed her to incorporate subjugated peoples into her realm. Even though her wars were long and bitter, once she had conquered, Rome swiftly established well-built roads, colonies, and other infrastructure to consolidate her gains. As a very practically-minded people, the Romans built these extensive networks of roads to allow them to quickly communicate with their allies as well as facilitate the movement of trade and armies. In addition to this, the Romans gave citizenship status to many of the Latin colonies and treated them as honored allies, rather than subjects, increasing their loyalty and speeding up the process of assimilation. This idea of citizenship, a legal status bequeathed by Roman law, as a means of integration or Romanization, quote-unquote, into the Roman state and way of life, belonged uniquely to Rome, and she benefited greatly from it 
by immensely increasing both her manpower and economic reserves. This foresight of Rome to befriend her conquests can be readily contrasted with Carthage's policies of suspicion towards her colonies, for while Rome's allies rallied to her cause and stayed firm even in the darkest days, Carthage's allies were nearly always ready to revolt against her rule. With all these strengths, it is not surprising that Rome succeeded in establishing her rule over the majority of Italy by the 300s BC. Born in blood and struggle, Rome rose from being one of countless feuding city-states to acquiring an extensive realm, fighting every square inch of the way. Her military innovations, her stable government, her grit to struggle on until final victory, and her foresight in using both practical methods such as infrastructure and legal statuses such as citizenship to conciliate her conquered peoples, all made Rome into a formidable and relentless power. By 300 BC, the Carthaginians must have rejoiced at the alliance they had established with Rome 200 years earlier, which now looked like, in the words of Richard Miles, an inspired piece of forward-thinking diplomacy. Little did they know that in a mere 30 years, Carthage and Rome would be locked in a brutal and bitter struggle for supremacy in the Mediterranean. Now, having completed our tour of the Mediterranean circa 300 BC, we will return to the narrative. Next time, we will discuss how once again a king of Epirus marched into Italy, this time to challenge the growing might of Rome, and how his actions would set two empires on a collision course that will result in what was perhaps the First World War of the Mediterranean. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>